Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I want to begin reading at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, uh, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that it would settle in our heart and spring up and bring a harvest to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In a book by the name of Vietnam Landing, Ted Burton relates a testimony of his years in Vietnam. And there is one battle in particular that he was describing where a number of the soldiers that he was with were being killed off. And what was eerie about this was that they could not see the enemy. The enemy obviously was able to see them because they were just being decimated, but they could not see the enemy. And there is something a little bit disconcerting about knowing that we have an unseen demonic enemy who knows exactly the kinds of things that we are involved in. And sometimes we'll get shot at and wonder, where in the world did that come from? And yet I find it interesting that there is no fear of the demonic in the book of Acts. Uh, not at all. We don't see Acts, uh, you know, telling all kinds of hair-raising stories about the demons, you know, that uh, uh, will frighten uh, little children. Instead, in the book of Acts we see every demonic account giving confidence in the power of God over Satan. What that soldier said that he had was radio contact with helicopters and jets. And uh, in pretty short order, they had the field subdued before them. And it's the same spiritually. If we were to only look at our own resources, it could be pretty intimidating to know that we've got an unseen enemy that's trying to take us out. But we have access to resources that far exceed anything that the enemy uh, could possibly muster. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, that does not mean that we can ignore the enemy. It does not mean that uh, the battle is an illusion. Some people think because God is sovereign over Satan that really we don't need to worry about it. Uh, we can just ignore the devil. Uh, no, not at all. Nor does it mean that Satan cannot be very, very effective in his battles against us. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 through 18, Paul said, But we endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire, 
Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan stymied every effort that Paul made to try to get back to Thessalonica, uh, which to me indicates this was a real battle. It's not an illusion. And there are losses on both sides. There are uh, you know, casualties. Uh, and when we're entering into, into battle with the enemy, I think we need to realize that we don't always know that uh, our hope for outcome is actually going to happen. And in the book of Acts, we're going to be seeing a lot of demonic opposition to the work of uh, Paul. So there's a couple of balances we see in this book. On the one hand, we've got incredible confidence in God's power. On the other hand, we realize uh, that uh, there is a battle that has to be fought. Satan is a real enemy. And we need to take into that into account. <clears throat> And uh, one of the strategies that Satan uses is to stir up people against uh, the Apostle Paul. In fact, that's probably his most common one. He tries to frustrate and divide and to uh, disrupt in various ways by stirring up people. And so, Acts also says we've got to look at the people situation. We've got to look at the demons who are sometimes stirring up those people behind the scenes. But almost every conservative commentary admits that the demonic is clearly here. In verse 6, Luke says that this missionary team found a sorcerer. Now, it says that with absolutely no embarrassment. Uh, it doesn't treat it as being a superstition. Sorcery is a real thing. Uh, it is a work of Satan. And it's a dangerous thing. It's a wrong thing that the Scriptures warn us about. Verse 7 says that the proconsul was an intelligent man, and yet he believed in sorcery. He had no doubt seen the power that Satan was able to wield through Bar-Jesus. Perhaps miracles, uh, some of the, the, the sorceries and the prophecies that he had done. And Satan continues to act upon the earth through things like seances, witchcraft, sorcery, other occult deceptions that he brings into the lives of people. In fact, if you count up the number of demons that are actually listed in the Bible you realize that they're not sleeping 24 hours a day. They've got to be up to something. Some people just act as, you just don't need to worry about demons. You know, they're really not that active. And sure, we do need to avoid the demon behind every bush kind of a syndrome. But just think of uh, Revelation 9's description of one contingent of Satan's army that has 200 million soldiers. That was the one that was stationed in the Euphrates. And there's indications that there were other armies that were stationed elsewhere. And I don't think it's unrealistic to say that there are upwards of a billion demons, likely, uh, that are in the world. And in Job 1, and in uh, uh, passages like uh, Matthew chapter 12, uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, it indicates that there are demons who go out on reconnaissance missions trying to gather information. And so, if that's been going on here, there's been tons of information that Satan's already gotten that's going to make him pretty upset. Verse 10 implies that Elymas had a pretty high-ranking demon attached to him. And I'm not going to go through all of the theology that the various books derive from this, but I think it's at least worthwhile for you to be familiar with some of the terminology that uh, they use. Uh, Modern theologians who deal with the issue of the demonic speak of three levels of warfare that people are engaged in. The first level they call many times 
uh, ground level uh, warfare, and that's where you're tempted by Satan or, or where you're under attack and maybe even disease and uh, casting out of demons. That would be ground level warfare. Then there's the second level, which is occult level spiritual warfare. And that's where Satan has control over a certain occult organized um, um, uh, even religions would be in the area of the occult. And then there's strategic level spiritual warfare where there is satanic control over a geographic region, perhaps over a, an ethnic group or uh, over a, a territory. Daniel, for example, speaks of a demon prince who was over uh, Persia and he speaks of another demon prince who was over Greece. Well, what's interesting in this passage is that we see all three levels at once. At the strategic level, the binding of Satan's control over, uh, 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 over Elemis, uh, Elemis's control over the Sergius Polis, I should say, opened up the governor to the gospel and opened up the whole region to the gospel. And anyone who is involved in politics, I think, needs to be uh, taking passages like this into account because Satan is constantly trying to influence and gain control over the minds of those who are in, in politics. And if you're not engaged in spiritual warfare, if you're in politics, you're going to be in a tough time because that's on a strategic level. On the occult level, Elemas' defeat would do irreparable damage to his reputation and the reputation of his religion. At the ground level, Elemas' work was disabled. So all three levels are present, and I don't think we can ignore any of those three levels. Now let's look at the reasons why this conflict came up in the first place. I think we can safely say that Satan's demonic um, spies are bringing back information all of the time. So Satan's probably pretty ticked off because Paul and Barnabas have been making some significant progress up to this point. And they've probably been attacking, trying to find chinks in his personal armor. They've not gotten anywhere there. And so what they do, uh, Satan and his uh, demons are stirring up people against him. What would be some of the things that Satan's already seen? Well, I think it would be quite clear that they've seen that God has raised up two leaders who are being sent into regions that have never been explored before. Verse 3 it says, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Satan notices those kinds of things. And then verse 4 indicates they're acting on that commission. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed uh, to Cyprus. So the first thing that we see is that Satan is uh, seeing or that God has raised up some leadership and Satan always goes after the leaders. Jesus said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so he's always interested in trying to get the leadership. And so you can ask a few questions. Why did Satan tempt David to number Israel in First Chronicles 21 verse 1? Why did he attack Job in Job 1 through 2? Why did he stand at Joshua the high priest's right hand trying to resist everything that he was doing in Zechariah 3 verse 1? Why was a messenger of Satan sent to be a thorn in the flesh for the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7? Why did Satan tempt Christ through Peter in Matthew chapter 16? Those and many other examples show that Satan's 
one of his biggest strategies is to try to take down leaders. If he can get a Teg Haggard to fall into sin, he's not just ruining his ministry and his local church's ministry, but he is having enormous collateral damage that affects other churches as well. And so, when, once he can strike the shepherd, the sheep themselves can easily be scattered. Uh, we're getting close to having officers in the church, and any time that happens, Satan sits up and he takes notice. And we need to be in prayer for them, or they will be preyed upon. We're going to see that prayer uh, sustained these leaders. Now, a second thing that the demons will not miss is who is seeking. And verse 7 says, here's a very strategic government official who was seeking to hear the word. <clears throat> it says this, Proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Here's a man who is obvious God is at work in his heart and Satan now has to raise up somebody to try to keep this person from listening uh, to the gospel. He's not going to let go of his captives very easily. And anytime you are trying to preach the gospel to an unsaved loved one or to somebody else, Satan is trying to do anything he can to keep that person in his clutches. Jesus describes them as children of Satan. So you're pulling away one of his children. You can better believe he's going to be fighting back. And if you invite them into the church, he's going to try to bring distractions or they're going to worry about their future plans or he's going to try to uh, maybe put a veil over their minds, cloud their thinking in some way. But he's going to try to keep them from uh, hearing the word of God. <clears throat> In the parable of the sower, Jesus describes how the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three, are being involved to keep the word from prospering. But the part that he talks about Satan is the seed that's been cast by the wayside and the birds come along and they're picking up all of these seeds. Well, here's what he describes that as uh, signifying. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. Well, that's exactly what Elemas the sorcerer is trying to do in verse 8. Elemas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And he knows how to do this. He's been around for 6,000 years. He's had a great deal of expertise. And he knows just which people will be the most influence in your life. If he can get at you through your spouse, he will try to do that. If he can get you to compromise through your children, he will do that. But if, if um, Satan could use a person like Peter to try to dissuade Christ from his purpose, you know he's going to try to do the same in our lives as well. <clears throat> and so, the first three reasons for spiritual warfare, there are effective leaders who have been raised up. Secondly, he notices a man who has been seeking... Thirdly, he thinks elements will be a perfect tool to hinder the gospel. And then a fourth contextual reason for the warfare is that he has been, that both of them, Paul and Barnabas, have been already very effectively penetrating Satan's territory. Verse 6, now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer. They were penetrating Satan's territory and he brings up this um, powerful opposition. And anytime we go into pagan territory, 
our angels go with us, automatically it's going to be setting up a, a tension between kingdoms. So there's no um, wonder that there is some confrontation going on here. But I think that point E is really the most important caution about this whole subject here. And, and it's this. I find it very remarkable that Acts doesn't spend a lot of time describing the unseen enemy. It's a very interesting thing. He is not enemy-focused. Luke is God-focused. Now, we might think, now, that'd make a, a great story. Um, if we were writing a film... You know, we'd want to get CGA going, special effects where you have the good angels and the bad angels fighting with each other, not focusing so much on the prayer. That's boring. What's more engaging is the behind the scenes battles that are going on. And yet you don't find that happening very often in the Bible. Very few detailed descriptions of the heavenly battles that are going on. There are enough of them that we know that they exist and we have enough biblical theology of demons that we can see and commentators can see. Yeah, there's obviously demonic opposition going on in this passage, but that is not where the focus of Luke is at. His focus is your responsibility in the face of the unseen enemy that is out there. He doesn't satisfy all of our curiosity. We don't need to know everything that's going on in the unseen realm. Now, the reason I bring that up is because there are more and more evangelical books that are coming off the presses that pretend to tell you a lot more about demons than the Bible tells you about demons. Uh, they will add their own experience as they've cast out demons to the Bible and then they will also gather information that they've gained from demons that they've cast out. For example, there's quite a number of people will do this. They will, before they cast a demon out, ask the demon's name. And what is your rank? And how many other demons are with you? And they'll try to get all kinds of information. And then based on hundreds of these cases, they will develop a theology uh, from that. Now, that is a very dangerous practice. And I'll tell you why. Three reasons why that is dangerous. First of all, it's dangerous because the Bible explicitly tells us to restrict our information to the Scripture. In Isaiah 8, verse 19, he says, don't get information from demons. The next verse tells us why. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says the Bible gives us everything we need for uh, making us thoroughly equipped for every good work. We don't need to go beyond the Bible. Now, a second reason it's a dangerous policy to be writing books this way is given by Jesus in John 8, verse 44. Jesus said, The devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. That means you cannot trust a thing that the demons are telling you when they're coming out of these people. In fact, when Christian evangelicals begin to write books based on the information, they're engaged in the very sorcery that the Bible condemns. It is wickedness. What? Sorcery is getting information from Satan rather than getting information from God. That's exactly what they're engaging in. And we need to stick to the Scriptures. A third danger with this common approach to studying demons is that the sensational books that come off of the evangelical presses strike fear into the hearts of Christians. It makes us ironically enemy-focused rather than God-focused. Acts doesn't focus on the enemy. 
Doesn't focus on all of Satan's strategies and plans and ideas. Now, the Bible does give us some of those. But the book of Acts makes us focus on the power of God, not on the power of Satan. And so really, the most important point for the sermon this morning is not points one and two, even though that is biblical information. It's more contextual. Point three is the most important point, and that is the power that we have for spiritual warfare. I read uh, Bevan Alexander in his book, uh, How Great Generals Win, tells of the ingenious way that the Roman general Scipio Africanus uh, won against Hannibal. Hannibal uh, used elephants in warfare, and it just struck terror into the hearts of the people. You have these massive beasts, you know, just rampaging through your ranks. I mean, they, they just squashed the horses. Everything just went flying. And it was really intimidating for these soldiers. Well, uh, Scipio Africanus came up with the brilliant idea of blowing a whole bunch of trumpets at these elephants. And it worked. It scared them. They retreated. They took off. And he had other strategies as well. But in this chapter, we have six powerful tools on our side we can use against Satan's intimidating tactics. First tool is the power that comes through prayer and fasting. Verses 2 and 3. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now we already dealt with this powerful tool last week, so I won't say a lot about it, but I have been encouraged that two of you approached me and said, you know, we were in fasting last week and the Lord gave us victories. He's given us breakthroughs that are just remarkable. And I'm excited for you, but I'm not surprised. Now, some people are surprised because when they look at prayer and fasting, they think of it as a weak tool. Uh, they think, you know, the prayer and fasting that formed the foundation for the selection of Paul and Barnabas, the commissioning and the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, man, that's just as weak as blowing trumpets at elephants who are tearing the place up. You know, surely we ought to be throwing some spears and getting some arrows. But those things did not even make the elephants flinch. It was the trumpets that made those elephants uh, flee. And the, the same is true uh, spiritually. The seeming weakness of prayer and fasting is the tool that makes Satan flee and gives us power. And I've seen all through my ministry that many times God has chosen to open up remarkable doors during and immediately after times of fasting. So, one of the reasons for the success of Barnabas and Paul is that they began their ministry with prayer and fasting, and then Paul later says he was in fastings often. So, if you did not get that sermon, download it off the website and listen to it. I think it's, uh, it really is an important sermon to understand. Second thing, gave these guys strength, is that verse 3 shows them being sent out as a team. And then they're supported back home by a team. God did not intend for us to fight our battles solo. Now, a lot of people prefer to do that. They prefer to go off on their own. But Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. He's saying there's a synergy of efforts. You've got division of labor, uh, which enables specialization. It keeps you from having to replicate the same things over again makes you more efficient. And so Solomon says they have a good reward for their labor. But then he goes on in the next verse and he says, For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. 
<clears throat> when you are going into battle, you need somebody to cover you. You need somebody to tend your wounds, you know, when you get wounded. Uh, you need somebody to shake you out of your shell shock and to get to you going again, you know, when the enemy's gotten the better of you. And so I would highly recommend that every last one of you have an accountability partner that can spur you on into holiness and say how you've been doing and conquering this sin and praying with you and, and trying to encourage each other to stand fast in the Lord. There is a power in working as a team. A third tool that these men had in their favor was the power of guidance. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Man, what an encouraging thing it is to be sent by God Himself out there into the world. I mean, to know His favor is upon you. To know He wants you to be out there. It gives you a, a, a sense that you can face those giants. You can take on the risks. I've had, um, I've had men tell me that when they really feel that their wives are for them, man, they can scale mountains and they can face giants no problem, but if they feel their wives are not for them, they're, they're, they're not even feeling secure and confident at work. Well, just take that idea and to a much greater degree, this is true of God. When we sense His calling upon our lives, when we sense He wants us to go out into the battlefield, Man, we can face all kinds of risk for Him. Uh, it, it, it gives us a confidence uh, when we have His guidance. So don't neglect this important aspect. In Exodus 33, verse 15, Moses said, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. He knew without God, there's no way that they could win. And he was willing to risk uh, his life, he was willing to face pain if God was with him, but not sensing that God wanted him to go, not sensing that God was truly calling them in this direction, it took the wind out of his sails. He did not want to engage in that. And calling is one of the five C's that Malcolm Weber talks about that is so important for leadership. Five C's are Christ, really being grounded in Him, community, we've already looked at those two, character, Calling and competencies. And uh, that sense of God's calling in your, in your life. Now, I tell you, that gives you just as much power in your spiritual battles as the air intelligence gave to Ted Burton when he was fighting that battle in Vietnam. Otherwise, he would have just been fighting blindly. He wouldn't have really known what he should be doing. So, there's a power in guidance. A fourth tool that aided them in taking over Satan's territory was the power of God's Word. And notice they weren't telling fun stories. Fun stories have their place if they're illustrating, if they're lifting up the Word. But it's the Word of God, first and foremost, that needs to be coming out of our lips. Verse 5, when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. I've heard radio preachers who have gone through an entire sermon without referencing the Bible one single time. That is not preaching the Word of God. Okay, that's just humanistic oratory. It might be brilliant, might be wonderful, might be fun to listen to, but it is not preaching the Word of God. Look at verse 7, last sentence. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. He didn't want just another opinion. He had all kinds of opinions he could appeal to. He wanted to hear what God Himself had to say. And I think that is so important. Too many times we inject ourselves into the message thinking our experiences are more interesting than the Word of God is. 
Or sometimes preachers will, will take the Word and they will use it as a jumping off point to preach their own ideas. But that's different than preaching the Word of God itself. The Bible doesn't say anything about Satan being concerned to snatch your opinions out of people, other people's hearts as soon as you give their opinions. He could care less about your opinions. Here's what it does say. Satan comes immediately and takes away the Word that was sown in their hearts. Mark 4, verse 14. Why? Because he knows the Word has power. It has power to change us from the inside out. Verse 12 shows the proconsul's astonishment. It says, at the teaching of the Lord. Wait a shake. The Lord wasn't even there. How could it be the teaching of the Lord? Is Paul and Barnabas' teaching? But no, it wasn't Paul and Barnabas' teaching. It was the teaching of the Lord because they were restricting themselves to preaching the Word of Christ. That's what they were passionate about. And when Christ resisted Satan with His choice selection of Scriptures, Satan had to leave. We have the same privilege. In James, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So don't underestimate the power of the Word when you're discipling your children. Bring the Word to bear in their lives because it's God's Word that has the power of changing us from the inside out. Uh, memorize the Word. Meditate upon the Word. It'll take your fears away. It'll give you a subduing of passions. It'll build your faith. It'll sanctify you. Remember Jesus' prayer? He said to, to the Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your Word is truth. Okay, so it has a power to even sanctify us. Powerful tool, and yet it so many times is neglected. A fifth tool that we see Paul using is imprecation. Now, an imprecation is pronouncing God's curse upon someone. That's not a nice thing to do. Evangelicals are supposed to be doormats who just smile when people push them around. But it's a quite different picture. The Bible presents when the Word of God, the Gospel, is being resisted, is being hindered. We're in a warfare for keeps and we need to play as if it is a warfare uh, for keeps. Those who obstinately resist God's work must be brought down. Let me make two prefatory statements before we look at the imprecation in verses 9 through 11. And I've made these before, but I'll keep making them because I think it's very important to keep them as a balance. First, imprecations are not inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that we can avoid the bad news of God's curse, of hell, of His judgments, if we have faith and repentance, if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. Okay, that's the, the good news. And so when the imprecatory psalms of the Old Testament are brought against a person, God can answer in one of two ways. If they repent and they have faith in Christ, then Christ bears that curse in their place. So they're defeated, the prayer is answered, they're conquered as an enemy, you know, they're taken out, they're no longer enemies. But the other way is where they bear the curse themselves and they are taken out. But either way, um, unbelievers are under the curse of God already. They're destined to hell. All we're saying is, Lord, these people don't look like they're coming to Christ. Just bring your judgment earlier. That's all it's asking. It's perfectly consistent with the gospel. If they want to repent, praise God, uh, we'll receive that repentance. The second prefatory statement 
is that these imprecations are consistent with our call to love our enemies. Paul tells us to love our enemies. And yet he brings these imprecations against uh, this individual here. You see, in the Old Testament, David was the one who wrote most of the imprecatory psalms and he wrote them against two people that he loved, Saul and his son Absalom. Now, I think he was hoping that Jesus would bear the curse in their place. But he realized God's kingdom purposes are more important than anything else on earth. And we do not want the gospel being hindered. And so, uh, he, he used those. So, let's look at, take a look at the imprecation that Paul brings, beginning at verse 9. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's just look at that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. It clues us into two things. First, it shows us that the Spirit of God Himself produced this imprecation. I think it was inspired. Uh, Paul was speaking inspired here. But even if that was not the case, it's still motivated by the Spirit of God. There are people out there like C.S. Lewis. You read his discussion on the Psalms who believe that the imprecatory Psalms are bad. You know, they can't possibly have been produced by the loving Holy Spirit. Uh, that uh, it was David's sinful nature that was expressing itself. Well, what they're missing out on is that the Spirit calls Himself the Spirit of judgment and the Spirit of burning. Isaiah 4, verse 4. It was the Spirit who smoked Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, It was the Spirit who struck down Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, it was when the Spirit came upon Samson that he goes off and he does what? He kills a bunch of people. I mean, the sentimental, wimped-out view of the Holy Spirit that is current in many circles is making a God in our own image. It is not the God of the Bible. Uh, we need to worship the true and the living God that He presents Himself to be. And so, first point, imprecations are clearly consistent with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who motivated them here. And the second thing implied by that phrase is just... The caution that I usually give to people is don't pronounce your own curses, okay? Use the ones that are given by the Spirit of God inspired in the Bible. I think this was an inspired one given by Paul, but use the ones that are given in the Bible. And I think it'll protect you from going overboard or becoming imbalanced because now it's the prayer of Christ you're taking and you're saying, Christ, I agree with your prayer and I want it to be applied, but you can apply it any way that you choose, okay? So it takes us a little bit out of the equation. So, let's look at the imprecation. Verse 9, then Paul, um, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently. And I believe that Paul, by God's uh, help of discernment, was seeing spiritually more than simply flesh and blood here. Verse 10, and he said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Uh, one commentator points out that other than the phrase son of the devil, these are just Old Testament phrases that he is using. And that the phrase son of the devil is a contradiction of his name. His Jewish name, Bar-Jesus, means son of the Savior. And he said, you're not son of the Savior, you're son of the devil, okay, is what he is saying. But man, what harsh words. People say, this, this just doesn't sound like 
Christianity, but actually you read the Bible and it's exactly what it sounds like because this is God's attitude toward those who resist the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, 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 it is just um, uh, not right to say pluralism is okay. Next time that you see the president having an imam, a Muslim imam praying side by side with an evangelical Christian at one of his ceremonies, reread this passage here and see what a blasphemy that is. Because what he is saying is you don't have the right to believe whatever you want to believe. This is the American way. You don't have the right you are commanded by Almighty God to repent and believe the gospel. And if you don't, you're going to come under judgment. Now, he's already had the gospel preached to him and he's rejected it. Well, if you reject the gospel, all that lies upon you is the wrath of Almighty God, which will send you to hell shortly. And so we just cannot buy into that kind of an idea. <clears throat> Verse 11. And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. God has authorized in the Psalms some pretty significant imprecations. And just as we need to take fasting seriously, we need to take the imprecations seriously. There's a power in them that is totally, totally lacking in the modern church. And I think it's high time that the church begins to pick up the imprecatory Psalms and begin to use them effectively. I read the story of Luca Sibanda, a South African who was attacked by a python. In fact, that python quickly swirled itself around him, began squeezing him, trying to suffocate him, break his bones, and then swallow him, I guess is the intent. And he fought with the only weapon that he had available at that point because his hands were all bound. And uh, he used his teeth. The head was right there. So he was just biting as fast as he could just below the head and it made it... Uh, loosen up a little bit so that he was able to kick and eventually he actually killed it with a stick, which was pretty remarkable. But I believe we are living in a time when Satan is suffocating the church of Jesus Christ. It's got it in a stranglehold and we have got to use every weapon that is at our disposal to oppose the, the wicked one and his purposes and fight with the same tenacity that Lucas did. The sixth powerful tool that God enabled them to use was miracles. We need to believe in miracles. Verse 11 says, And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now, Paul only pronounced blindness for a time, and some people have wondered, why is it just for a time? Um, the early church father Chrysostom said the reason for that is that Paul was hoping that this physical blindness, when it was done, would make him repent of his spiritual blindness and bring him to salvation. Whether that is the case or not, we don't know, but it certainly was a miracle that had a profound effect upon Sergius Paulus, which brings up the last tool that we have, the power of the Lord's methods of teaching. Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The Reformed commentator Joseph Alexander wrote, What struck the mind of the proconsul and commanded his belief with the Lord's mode of teaching his own religion, both by word and miracle. Truth alone does not convert, it hardens. Truth alone does not convert, it hardens. Apart from God's power 
at work in our ministry, it will not succeed. Now, I want you to notice what it is that the proconsul is astonished at here. I'm sure he was astonished at the miracle too. But verse 12 says, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. God was speaking to him through this whole event. God opened up the eyes of his understanding. He taught him through what Paul was ministering. And God loves to use the foolishness and the weakness of preaching to open up the eyes through the power of God unto salvation. And we've got to have a similar faith in God's presence and power in each one of these weapons of warfare. When we pray and fast without God, we're going to end up without God's power. When we organize community, you know, simply with our own fleshly strength and ingenuity, we're going to get only what human flesh and ingenuity can provide. When we seek guidance from men, that's all we're going to get is men's guidance unless the Lord uh, speaks through those people. If we study God's Word without a dependence upon God, we're not going to have any more benefit than liberals who study the Word and write commentaries on the Word. They're not even saved and they write them. We can imprecate all we want to against the enemy and it's not going to amount to more than a hill of beans unless God is backing up those imprecations. We've got to have God there. We started the sermon off with Ted Burton. He and his men were hopelessly outnumbered and were fighting blindly, not knowing what to shoot. But, you know what? He had a radio and with that radio... He was able to bring in reinforcements of helicopters and jets and gunships. And once the skies started responding, there wasn't any of the enemy that was left. In fact, there wasn't much uh, vegetation that was left in that whole region. Um, And that's the way it is spiritually as well. We, too, have a military radio. It's the first weapon that we looked at, prayer and fasting. Now, it may not seem like much. You know, you can't kill an enemy by throwing a radio at him. (laughs) But that radio is calling in the spiritual reinforcements for all of the other weapons, all of the other things that we are doing. It's calling in the jets and the helicopters and the gunships. And so what this passage is really saying to us is, yes, we must fight valiantly, but let's not do it in our own flesh. Let's do it with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your word and this reminder, and it is our desire not to fight in our own uh, flesh and to have trust in the right arm of man, but to trust in you. Father, give to us the ability to pray in the spirit, to be guided by your spirit, to engage in all of our warfare uh, through uh, your empowering. And Father, as we fight, may we uh, fight in the right direction. And not consuming one another, but uh, unitedly standing against the common foe uh, that we have in the world, the flesh and the devil. We love you, and it is our desire to serve you faithfully all of our days. And so we commit ourselves to you and to your care and pray that uh, this word would uh, have an impact and would bear fruit to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.